And Amishman was, the story goes, was coming into <coughs> into town with a friend, and um, he had a, a check that he wanted to cash. So his uh, he and his friend went into the first bank they came to, went up to the counter, and asked the um, uh, the teller there to cash the check. And uh, the Irishman said, he consonant check uh, sign. Uh, or he's supposed to sign the check. He said, consonant sign check. And uh, the, the uh, teller said, you've got to sign it. That's the only way we can cash it. No, you consonant sign check. And so uh, he said it another time, and he still refused. So finally, the Amishman said to his friend, let's go to my bank. So they went on in town and <clears throat> went to his bank and went up to the banker and, <clears throat> and said, I need to sign my check. And the friend told him, I need to sign the check. And, and the banker says, well, you have to sign it. And the Amishman said, he's conscientious sign check. And they banker took his head and smashed it against the, the counter a couple times and signed the check. So he signed the check. And they went out to the bank and his friend said, now why did you sign the check here and you didn't sign it over there? And he said, well, banker explains it to me. Sometimes God has to bang our head against a, a, a counter to explain something to us. And so this morning we'd like to um, to talk about hardness of heart. I feel like I'm eating this thing. Um, and how that God does at times take our head and bang it on the counter to get our attention. The John, John Eldridge said this, in relation to the idols of the heart, or the imps of the heart, I'm sorry. We're going to talk about the imps of the heart today. Um, he said, We hope that God will be our hero. Of all the people in the universe, He could stop the arrows, those painful experiences, and arrange for just a little more blessings in our lives. He can spin the earth, change the weather, topple governments, obliterate armies, and resurrect the dead. Is it too much to ask that He could intervene in my story? He often seems aloof, almost indifferent to our plight, so entirely out of control. Would it be any worse if there was no God? If He didn't exist, at least we wouldn't get our hopes up. We could settle once and for all that we really are alone in the universe and get on with surviving as best we can. This is, in fact, how many professing Christians end up living as practical agnostics. Perhaps God will come through, perhaps He won't. So I'll be hanged if I'm going to live as though he had to come through. I'll hedge my bets, and if he does show up, so much the better. The simple word for this is godlessness. You know, the hard things in life will shatter a shallow belief that God is good. And so he bangs our head on the... On the um, counter as he's trying to teach us. 
if painful experiences don't eventually drive us to a, a firmer conviction that God is good, then to the same degree we will embrace bitterness, fear, and apathy spiritually. Because Satan mounted his, his rebellion through the power of one primary thought, that is that God doesn't have your good in mind. And that reduces to God doesn't have a good heart, which means God is not good. And if he can convince us of that, we're on the road to destruction. So we spent the last two days talking about the idols, the, the good things, the blessings, and what what danger there can be in that. Our, our spiritual passivity and compromise most often come through the things that we run after rather than the things that we run from. So we'll talk about that a little bit more later. Now before we get started, uh, I only have about four more copies, or found four copies laying around here of the Hardness of Heart. Are there any of you that don't have it that would like to have a copy? You, we handed out earlier. Um, You only have four, so that won't go very far. <clears throat> While that's happening, let's uh, stand together and again quote this scripture and we'll sing our song, our theme song again um, after that. All right, together. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from sin's death to death, so that we may serve the living God. Hebrews 13. All right. Change my heart, O God. Make it ever true. Make my heart, O with your presence, with your spirit would come and take the things that you've written, the things that you've given to us deep into our own hearts and experiences as we go through difficult times the imps that seem to uh, block our pathway and, and uh, cause us to stumble and to feel the pain of life's um, struggles and trials and so forth. Lord, help us not to despise those intrusions into our lives because 
we know that a good hand is in charge. So guide us as we think on that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may be seated. There's two verses of Scripture that come to mind that I think underscore the, the idea that there's redemptive pressure in affliction that is probably not there in pleasure in, in uh, when things are going well. Psalm 119, verse 67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. Something about affliction that helped the psalmist to keep God's word, to be faithful, to follow on. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. <clears throat> and in the New Testament, it comes out very similar. It says, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. I catch this last part. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Suffering in the flesh is so important for us in overcoming sin, overcoming the flesh. Um, and so, we're not going to find God says Larry Crabb in his book, Finding God, by detaching ourselves from the ugly, painful realities of the world around us or within us. The route to God never takes us around our problems. The route to God never takes us around our problems. We have to walk through them. When God allows bad things, that is what keeps us or tests us in believing that he's good. So what do you depend on when you're going through bad things, difficult things, hard things? Uh, when God allows those things to happen to us, what keeps you believing that he's good? Anyone have a response to that? What keeps you believing that he's good when you're going through dark valleys? Faith To whom shall we turn? I'm sorry. Past experiences with him. That's an important one. As we walk along, God continues to grow us. So the new experience might be a little bit worse than the last experience. But the last experience, he was there. So I'm going to trust him in this new one. What else? Every tragedy is a blessing or God is a liar. He said that as a Christian, every tragedy is a blessing or God is a liar. <laughs> yes. Okay. Who is this? What's that? Okay, the PC brings good thought.
that's his bottom line statement. God is good. One of them, the big ones, is right here. This word tells us that God is good. And so in the middle of those struggles, get into his word. Another one that's maybe a little bit more as um, ascetic is, is the beauty. The beauty. Of, in the middle of tragedy and warfare and so forth, flowers grow. His goodness is still there. It's still apparent through His beauty. God didn't have to give you taste buds. You could all taste like rice with hardly any taste. He didn't have to paint colors. It could have all been shades of gray and black and white. But in His goodness, it it still comes through even in a fallen world. Well, um, Ernest said this after Rachel was killed in that tragic accident just before his son's wedding. He said, Suffering is the most hallowed place of our Heavenly Father's presence. The birthing room of travail where Christ is born in us and born from us in the multiplication and magnification of His life. I don't know I can say it any better. Again, quoting from Larry Crabb, he says, If we maintain our commitment to minimize pain, we'll be required to numb our longings, to pretend we want less than we really do. At the same time, we cut the nerve that causes us pain. We destroy all hope of joy. That's why... Paul reflects and says my, uh, that God said to him, my grace is sufficient for thee. And we'll get at that a little bit more later. <clears throat> Somebody has observed that um, in the, the 30 years of warfare, terror, murder, and bloodshed, Italy produced the Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. During 500 years of democracy and peace, Switzerland produced the cuckoo clock. That's probably not uh, looking at history quite accurately, but um, Switzerland also produced many of our ancestors out of a lot of turmoil and pain and death and trial. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I think two of the um, of one of the speakers I forget who it was at Rachel Whitmer's funeral was commenting on this particular scripture, and his comment was that God calls us to walk through, continue to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Don't run through it. Don't sit in the middle of it. Don't skip through it and act like it didn't happen. But walk through it. Walking through the valley of trial. So I'd like to look at at um, three expressions of the imps of the heart. 
And um, these, we could spend a whole week on each one of these. Um, but we'll just kind of introduce them and allow you to do some more studying or thinking about it in, in the future. Um, the three imps of the heart, or I think I have a hardness of the heart in, in your papers. First one is fear, which says, I can't. I'm scared. I'm afraid. I can't. I can't bear that. I can't do that. I can't perform that. I can't uh, handle. There's a paranoia that stops the individual. And the tendency is to, to run or to freeze. If I had a life-size rubber snake and threw it at my wife without her knowing about it, you'd probably hear a scream. Because until she figures out that it's a rubber snake and not a real one, she's living with a falsehood. She's living with a lie during that little period of time. And that's really what fear does. It, it, when, we, when we see the event, we get scared, we shut up or we, we freeze or whatever. Fear is based on falsehoods. We believe what is wrong. And so we are traumatized by that lie. And we can spend more time on that uh, in a little bit. So the core belief of fear is that God's not worthy of our complete trust. There is something that could happen that if it did, I could not worship God. Steve Masterson says that in his book. <clears throat> the second imp that we'd like to talk about this morning is bitterness, which is basically the resolution, I won't. It's not I can't as much as it's I won't. I won't forgive. I won't befriend. I won't love. There's wrath, there's revenge behind this. <clears throat> and so we have these fruits of bitterness that are explained or numbered, named in um, Romans chapter 1. They're filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God. The list that goes on. Despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. That's where bitterness takes us. Uh, Paul has quite a list there. So, again, as, I, as long as I keep looking at God as a landowner who wants to get the most out of me for the least cost, I cannot but become jealous, bitter, and resentful toward my fellow workers. If I can't see God working behind that man's slanderous statement about me, I'm going to end up bitter. And the third one we'll talk about is I don't. I don't care. I don't have any interest. I don't wish. I don't longing for anything. We've become Buddhist Christians. We live in nirvana where the idea is to get rid of all desire. Absence of desire. They are darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. 
Leonard Ravenhill says, Too often we hide ourselves from ourselves lest the sight of ourselves should sicken ourselves. And so we close down. Passivity really ought to be a flashing, warning light. It should be kind of like that. You've been in a classroom or someplace and somebody's vehicle gets hit uh, or bumped and then the security system goes on. It's so irritating. It just goes and goes and goes. The person who's got the car is in bed sleeping and uh, they finally wake up and come out there and after about 15 minutes of listening to that thing beep, you, uh, it goes off. But passivity in one of your brothers or sisters, or particularly in your own life, ought to be like that warning signal. Something's wrong. Something needs help. Something needs to have someone work with them. Passivity ought to be a warning alarm. It ought to irritate just like that beeping security system. Larry Crabb again said, Conformist sounds something like this. And he's talking about the gospel of the impersonal obedience, where it's not internalized, it's just doing it. He says, Conformist sounds something like this. Who I am doesn't really matter. Healing of my childhood wounds isn't as important as following the rules. Obedience will heal whatever needs healing. I must therefore believe what is true and act accordingly. I must do right no matter how I feel. Then I'll be fine. Trouble is, it doesn't work out that way. We keep dragging through life either with fear, bitterness, or apathy. So, when God allows a painful situation to come, do it, does it strike me as essential? Can I embrace it as important to my life? Could I have become more godly without that difficult experience? We kind of infer to God that I could become better follower of you if you wouldn't give me this pain. That's what we infer. Do I perceive how crucial these have been to my spiritual development? These hard things. Is my faith in God's sovereignty just as strong in these as when I received the unexpected bonus of a thousand dollars? Many of us have no idea how much these aches of the heart influence our actions, our thoughts, our emotions, our attitudes, our fears. You know what? These things have become functional scarecrows in our in our life. Um, others see and sense the presence of these scarecrows in our lives, but we are clueless that we're flapping in the wind, as it were, and. Every time we think about approaching an experience of transformation in relation to these hard things, the painful memories make us fly right on past. It's a scarecrow. We know when to politely lead the conversation. Um, you know, when the thing turns around to a, a uh, subject that has caused us pain, we know just how to kind of extricate ourselves from, from that 
conversation. If it's a doctrinal issue or a financial issue, a friendship, a, um, a home life or academics or whatever, why do we leave a group that are talking about a certain subject and what is that subject that we don't feel comfortable talking about? Those are the kind of things we like to discuss this morning. We learn how to passively, politely avoid certain issues, thus protecting our walls that we built around them. We've isolated our soul. We've desensitized ourselves. We can't perceive how we can handle that situation, so we can't offer any hope to somebody else that's in the similar situation. Our shell keeps us safe. Our nirvana is so precious. Or is it? We live like a bird in the desert, hungry, tired, and alone. And there's worms and there's berries in the next field, but Satan's scarecrow keeps us from going there. So, <clears throat> Paul said he would embrace those painful things, those things that are that he would rather have lived without. And he says, Lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. You see, his, his reason for accepting them is I don't want to be exalted above measure. I don't want to be trying to get to the top, as some of you have talked about. He was willing to be at the bottom. Lest I be exalted above measure. He goes on, says, There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. You know, if it's a messenger of Satan, we should have authority to be able to get rid of that thing in our life, right? Why would we want, or why would God want a messenger of Satan to continue to be hassling us? But Paul saw something that we often don't see. He says, Lest I should be exalted above measure, for this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it may de might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. God is giving grace when that messenger of Satan is attacking us. He doesn't leave us without grace. He says, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, uh, Paul, I wish we could all say this, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. What a testimony. In uh, Ezekiel, let's just look at a number of the scriptures here before we actually look at the... Um, the three imps that we want to talk about. For they are impudent children and stiff-hearted. Hard-hearted. That's the imp we're talking about. I do send thee unto them, and thou shalt say unto them, and then God gave Ezekiel the message he was to share with them. Uh, a little bit later, he says, But the house of Israel will not hearken unto thee. Ezekiel, they're not going to listen to you. For they will not hearken unto me. For all the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. Behold, I have made thy face strong against their faces, and thy forehead strong against their forehead. As adamant, harder than flint, have I made thy forehead. Fear them not, neither be dismayed at their looks, though they be a rebellious house. And then God promises toward the end of that book, he's going to change his people. 
because he's going to take away the stony heart and put within them a heart of flesh. Deliverance is promised. Um, a hardened heart is never an inviting heart. So we have to have a, a, a heart that's made out of flesh, a heart that feels. And um, without divine intervention, these experiences are going to desensitize us and we become stiff-hearted, hard-hearted, stony-hearted, as the scripture says. That's what happened to Pharaoh. In the first about five or six of the, um, uh, the plagues, the Bible records that he hardened his heart. And then the last plagues, it says that God hardened his heart. Did he not have any choice in that? He certainly did. He had made his choices in those first ones. And so God was just augmenting his own choices as he went through those last ones. Um, Saul was so bitter and jealous that he was blind. He couldn't see that David was his greatest asset. He was blind by his, his bitterness, his, his uh, anguish, and so forth. Isaiah 63 says, O Lord, why hast thou made us to err from thy ways and hardened our heart from thy fear? Oh, another, some more scriptures. Zechariah says, Yea, they made their hearts as adamant stone, lest they should hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts has sent his spirit by the former prophets. Therefore came great wrath upon You know, hardness is going to hinder your ability to study God's word. You will interpret it wrongly. You won't see what you need to see in scripture. In Matthew... Says Moses, because the hardness of your heart suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Hardness is going to damage your marriage, it's going to destroy your marriage. And it says in Mark chapter three, and when he had looked around them, about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their heart, he said unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the others. Hardness removes compassion for those that are hurting. Around you don't see them, you don't care about them. And it says in Mark 16, afterward they appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which they had had seen him after he was risen. Hardness veils reality. We can't even see what actually is happening around us. And after the hardness and impenitence your heart you treasure up unto yourself wrath against the day of wrath and also Ms. E.B. says it this way in Ephesians 4 as a follower of the Lord I order you to stop living like stupid godless people their minds are in the dark and they, have, and they are stubborn and ignorant and have missed out on life that comes from God they no longer have any feelings about what is right and they are so greedy that they do all kinds of indecent things You know, hardness of heart, it appears from Scripture, needs daily contact with other believers. If we're going to overcome it. Hebrews chapter 3 says, But exhort one another daily, while it is still called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Some of us don't interact daily with brotherhood does that precondition us to hardness uh, much quicker 
I think it was uh, C.S. Lewis who said this, if you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. And again, Gary Thomas says, a heavyweight boxing champion who dodges all serious contenders to consistently fight marshmallows is derided and ridiculed, rightly so. Christians who dodge all serious struggle and consciously seek to put themselves in whatever situations and relationships that are easiest are doing the same thing. They are coasting, and eventually that coasting will define them and even more shape them. I remember Rick Rhodes <clears throat> was telling us how as he was um, in AC school, they would go to the AC convention, and he was, in the first years that they went there, uh, he was playing against other ones in his school, and he, he, would, he was able to, to beat all the other students, but then when he got to the AC convention, uh, he usually got beat, or he did get beat in those uh, first year or so. And uh, he said he realized that if he was going to win, he'd have to play against somebody that was much better than he was. He couldn't play with somebody who was just on the same level. He had to play with somebody that was much better. So he went to, I think, the University of Iowa or Iowa City or someplace there. Uh, I don't know. No, his, his folks aren't here. could ask them. Um, and, and started playing against some of the, the students at the university. And some of these guys were um, uh, from Asia, and they were quick, little guys. And he said that uh, when he started playing them, he hardly even got the, the ball back to the other side. Of the, uh, he was constantly, the spins and so forth, and the speed of it, he could just not keep up with them. But little by little, as he was playing with them, he was able to, to start... <laughs> winning a few games and eventually uh, was much better. Then when he went to the AC convention, uh, in his later years of high school, he was able to win the first place trophy there. Now, if we're going to just avoid the hard things in life, we're going to play on the sandlot spiritually. We're not going to be able to, <coughs> to experience the the joy of deeper relationship with God. Now I'd like to, <clears throat> to uh, we need to keep moving here if we're going to get finished with this today. To experience pleasure or pain without Christ will distort the soul. When we keep our hearts small by hiding our painful experiences, forget where we put them and then forgot that we, or forget that we forgot. That's a dangerous place to be in. The situations we are in are never the cause of our behavior. It is the context of it. Now let's look at those three imps that we were talking about. First one being fear. Fear. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus. Um, enduring hardness, to undergo hardship, to be afflicted, endure afflictions, 
hardness, again, suffer trouble. Um, we don't develop a convincing argument that God is good when you've never or seldom experienced turmoil or tragedy. And the muscle of God's goodness is developed in the workshop of calamity. And that's what Job was experiencing. He says, For the thing which I greatly feared has come upon me, and that which I was afraid of is come to me. What did Adam and Eve do when they first sinned? They hid themselves. What motivated them to go behind the bushes? Afraid. They were afraid. I think Claire might have shared this with me a number of years ago. Um, Adam's response unveils the framework of fear. Um, let's just look at it briefly. The first thing he said um, was, I was, what he said was, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Okay. The first thought is, I was afraid. That's his core emotion. Uh, the fear of punishment, the fear of exposure, the fear of rejection. Every time we sin, the first temptation is to hide it, to cover it, to get behind the bushes. Let the bushes protect us from exposure. I was afraid. And then the second statement is, what? Because I was naked. That was his motivation. He had no excuse. He didn't have something that made sense. He didn't have a covering that was suitable. I was naked. There was no good excuse. And then his final statement was, so I hid myself. And that's our strategy. That's when we go for the bushes to cover, to conceal ourselves. The, the natural result of sin is fear. The fear of being exposed. We don't want others to see our vulnerability. And so we're going to act from one of two bases, either fear or the truth. And Adam and Eve acted out of fear. They didn't act from the truth. They, didn't, they tried to hide the truth, hide from it. Often our childhood traumas begin to form the nature of our fears. And then through life, the difficulties and experiences we have just kind of add to them. And we become quiet about what's going on because we feel uh, unable to, to move forward. Maybe we were made fun of or we come from a dysfunctional home or we had failure in school or we're not very athletic and everybody else in the youth group is. And so I, you know, I just don't really feel like I quite fit in. Um, we find a tree to hide behind. We replace, and our tree has maybe charming niceness, um, or maybe bossiness, might be anger. We have ways of moving ourselves away from the situation so we're not focused at, at us. Anything to avoid the liability of fear. Watchman Nee said, Fear will bring you the very thing you are afraid about. And Larry Crabb says, Future hope must be more valuable than present relief. Future hope has to be more valuable. <clears throat> Let's just sing this quickly, the first verse. Um, 
this whole thing of trusting God rather than being in fear. I just keep trusting my Lord by um, John Peterson. I just keep trusting my Lord as I walk along. I just keep trusting my Lord and He gives us song. Though the storm clouds darken the sky or the heavenly trail, I just keep trusting my Lord. He will never fail. He's a faithful friend. Such a faithful friend. I can count on Him to the very end. Though the storm clouds darken the sky or the heavenly trail, I just keep trusting my Lord. He will never fail. So, what determines the, dis- the difference between a young woman who faces hard things in life and becomes a godly mother is over the one uh, who becomes like a prostitute, sensual harlot we see all over Thailand. I'd just like to suggest maybe their fathers and mothers wanted to abort them. They didn't want them. And this created that tension, that pain in their life. Maybe their fathers or brothers abused them. Or... Maybe they had experienced some really difficult things in life. But one learned how to exercise faith of taking painful thoughts to a good God. The other learned or used those painful thoughts as verification that God didn't care. Peter experienced the fear of man like uh, Brother Berlin's been talking about. And I think it's very interesting, and you've, you've no doubt heard some of this previously. Um, Jesus told, had told Peter that if any man come unto me and hate not his father, mother, wife, children, brethren, sisters, yea, his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Peter had heard that. But then when, when uh, one person came up and said, This man is with Jesus, what did Peter say? Woman, I don't even know that man. Another one came up and said, You were one of them. Peter said, No, I'm not. Third one came and said, This man must be with Jesus. They both come from Galilee. And he says, I don't know what you're talking about. Three times he's hiding behind the bushes in fear. Well, you know what happened. There, after the, the resurrection, Jesus comes to Peter and he says Peter do you love me and Peter says Lord I like you Peter do you love me yes Lord I like you and Jesus asked the third Peter do you like me and Peter says know my heart I like you You know, this was before Pentecost. This was before he was one of the um, men who, who spoke powerfully. And, and that sermon that he gave there in Acts, this is all before that. And Peter has been tested now by God about his fear of man. But Peter, like you and I, 
still suffered even after Pentecost with the fear of man. It's not like it was all over at this point. Because a few years later, Peter's still suffering from the idolatry of man's approval. In Galatians, it says, When Peter came to Antioch, Paul opposed him to his face because he was clearly wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid. So, brothers and sisters, when you're still struggling with something that you, you know, you took care of it back there at that tent meeting or that whatever, recognize that God is growing you. It's not like this bump and then we don't have it anymore. There's still growth to be made in about every category of our lives. We're going to continue to move in the right direction. And so Peter is still wrestling years later with fear. He was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. Don't abandon the delivery process. Okay? It's going to take a lifetime as you keep getting closer and closer and grow more and more into the image of Christ. That doesn't mean those things are all gone. Keep in the delivery process. Find a Paul that can walk with you who says in his heart or in her heart, I'll travail in birth till Christ be formed in you. It's going to be an ongoing process. Peter was gaining but he was not yet totally fearless. So, that's fear. The second one is, is bitterness. And again, we could spend a week on this. Some of you could do a better job of spending a week on this than I could. This whole thing of bitterness. You know, without the miraculous indwelling presence of Christ, the sins of mankind are going to make us bitter. Going to make us bitter. Um... And that's why the warning comes. Looking diligently, lest any man fail the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. We just get upset. We get angry, frustrated. Sometimes forgiveness is a little bit like peeling an onion. You do it one layer at a time, and you cry a lot of tears. Many times when we start to forgive someone, we don't realize that there's deeper implications and then we have to forgive again when those deeper implications have been unveiled or that layer comes off. And then we think, now I'm through it. But then we find out even more. You know, what it affected me now maybe affects my children or affects my relationships. And so we continue to peel off the, the layers of forgiveness with many tears as we go through it. Forgiveness is not an occasional act, as Martin Luther said. It's a permanent attitude. It's a permanent attitude. Christ is our model of forgiveness. You don't have room on your paper to... Um, I don't have it on here. And so probably, warn you, don't try to keep up. <laughs> um, but I can get this to you later if you'd like to write it down. Christ is our model... Forgiveness is not easy. It wasn't easy for him. It cost him something. And it involved embracing that loss. Not avoiding it, not walking around it, but walking through it. Embracing the loss. 
It involves accepting injustice. And that's where we really stumble. It wasn't right. It's not fair. You know, if it was right and if it was fair, you wouldn't have to forgive. It's it's uh, it's unjust. It accentuates a longing for restoration. True forgiveness desires that restoration. It's actively involved in pursuing the offender. We're not avoiding the offender. We're actively involved in pursuing them and trying to love them as Christ loved us when we were offending Him. It's unsatisfied with the offender's incomplete repentance. It doesn't take a a passive view about that. It continues to long for the full repentance. But it's not going to withhold forgiveness if it's not there. So forgiveness did not involve restoration without uh, repentance. Um, Let's just look at a few more things here. In essence, when we forgive, we say this. When you offended me yesterday, I received it as a I received that hurt as an assignment from God designed to strengthen and build the responses and character of Christ in me. It gave me an opportunity to identify with the pain of Christ on the cross. It gave um, I'm sorry, it gave me the opportunity to receive God's grace to demonstrate in a limited way how Jesus would look if he were living in today's world. Forgiveness has become my way of life. I expect to use this agent regularly as Christ is formed in me. I think that's a beautiful expression of how we look at offenses and what forgiveness looks like. And my forgiveness not only extends to what you did to me yesterday, it also applies to what you may do to me tomorrow. When I sin today, Christ does not stop to decide whether or not he will forgive me. He decided that already back at Calvary. And so when you and I forgive someone, we have already forgiven them, even if it comes up in the, fu- in the future. Um, he decided that back at Calvary. We are enabled in him to do the same. Let's look at the last one in apathy. As over against zeal. Apathy. Jeremiah 6. They dressed the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Apathy. Again, we could spend a lot more time on that. I'm not going to <clears throat> to do that today. I would like to, as we close this session, take you to some precious promises in First Peter. Um, these have been some of the greatest encouragements to me and my family as we've gone through some difficult things from time to time. Um, 
you can fill in the blanks there. This is from, uh, I think, the Phillips translation in First uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. If we can just capture what Peter is saying, this is so encouraging in the middle of our storm, in the middle of our struggle. It says, You can now hope for a perfect inheritance. Brothers and sisters, everybody in this room who is a believer, you can hope for a perfect inheritance beyond the reach of change and decay reserved in heaven for you. And in the meantime, you are guarded by the power of God operating through your faith till you enter fully into the salvation which is already for the denouement of the last day. This means tremendous joy for you. I know even though at present you are temporarily harassed by all kinds of trials and temptations, this is no accident. It happens to prove your faith, which is infinitely more valuable than gold. And gold, as you know, even though it is ultimately perishable, must be purified by fire. This proving of your faith is planned to result in praise and honor and glory. You get that? God's intention is that it's going to result in praise and honor and glory in the day when Christ reveals Himself. Christ Jesus reveals Himself. And though you have never seen Him, and you haven't, we haven't seen Him yet, yet I know that you love Him. At present, you trust Him without being able to see Him. Even now, He brings you the joy that words cannot express and which has in it a hint of the glories of heaven. And all the time, you're receiving the results of your faith in Him, the salvation of your own souls. The, um, right after our daughter Kayla had passed away and we had gone to Minnesota to up here to, um, um, to bury her, we got back down to, to um, Pennsylvania to SMBI and I, uh, Crystal that evening was just really distressed. Um, she said, we've been living in the emergency room for the last two and a half years. It's like I'm constantly having to watch Kayla and, and uh, now it's my heart. And she was having heart trouble. And she just was distressed and I said, I just wonder if I'm going to make it. I'm going to lose it. And I, I said, well, I don't... You know, she was wondering how I could help her and Curie. I didn't have any words. So I went... <clears throat> we went to bed the next morning. I got up and had my devotional time. And by God's providence, it was this scripture in this particular uh, version of the, of the scripture that God brought me to. As I read through that, I was so encouraged. It's like God knew exactly what I need to hear on that particular morning. As I kept reading, came into chapter 4 and it says and now dear friends of mine I beg you not to be unduly alarmed at the fiery ordeals which come to test your faith we felt like we'd just been through that lost our daughter going through this heart thing as though this is some abnormal experience so we were thinking this is pretty abnormal who else is facing all this well others have faced this as much but it felt like we were really in the worst of it 
you should be glad because it means that you're called to share Christ's sufferings. One day, when he shows himself in full splendor to men, you will be filled with the most tremendous joy. One day, filled with the most tremendous joy. And then as I finished reading that book that morning in chapter 5, it says, you can throw the whole weight of your anxieties upon him, for you are his personal concern. Brothers and sisters, take your pain, take your imps to God. State your case. Give your argument like Job did. Express your frustration. Listen, then. Insight will come. Grace is promised. Joy eventually will be heard from the Lord. And beyond that, get one or two trusted friends to share with that you can share with because God promises time and time again in the mouth of two or three witnesses there's, there's safety. God made us for brotherhood. Don't create a clique of any kind but a small battalion of soldiers as it were to help us conquer this battle and God will again will direct you to those who can, can be your fellow soldiers in the battle.